You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, please do so and turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And he said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, verse 18, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to a truly incredible moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, after reading our text this morning, you might uh, feel a bit confused. Because it was just last week in the text right before this one that we read of Jesus, the humble king, the gentle king riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey. A scene in which we all marveled at the gentle nature of Jesus as he rides into the holy city, not to instigate war with Rome, but instead to make peace with God on our behalf. We marveled, didn't we, at the restraint of this great king as we saw the love of God on display in the triumphal entry. We saw the gentle king, the humble king. But now, it appears that Jesus has swung in the exact opposite direction as he is literally flipping over tables in the temple and cursing otherwise innocent fig trees. What did the fig tree ever do to Jesus? 
And the question lingering in our hearts is, of course, what is going on? Why the contrast? What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus is teaching everyone a lesson in who he is. Listen carefully. Jesus is teaching everyone a lesson regarding who he is. Yes, he is the humble king who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the same God who offered a covenant of pure grace to Abraham back in Genesis 15. He is a gracious, loving God. And Jesus is the judge of all the universe and he will not stand idly by when his own image bearers are being manipulated and mistreated by those in power. In other words, Jesus is the same God who spoke judgment through the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. In short, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he is full of both grace and truth, love and judgment. Perhaps most surprising to the crowd following Jesus into Jerusalem was not that he claimed to be king or even that he displayed authority or judgment. Perhaps most surprising to the crowd is where he went to exercise his kingly authority and judgment. The crowd had expected Jesus to head straight for Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem. They had expected Jesus to use his kingly authority to kick Rome out of Israel once and for all. But that's not where this king went. Jesus didn't go to the steps of Pilate's headquarters. Instead, Jesus heads straight for the temple courts. And it's there that he shows a side of himself that we rarely see in the Gospels. We've seen glimpses of his judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees. We've seen glimpses of his judgment over the demonic realm and so on. But there is nothing like this scene in all of the Gospels. Jesus is executing his righteous and holy judgment in his father's house. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is angry. He's angry. What do we see in these verses before us this morning? First, we see cleansing. Then we see a curing. And then a cursing. Cleansing, curing, and cursing. First, we see a cleansing. And of course, this cleansing happens in the holy temple there in Jerusalem. Read verses 12 and 13 again with me. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them in verse 13, it is written, my father's house, my house rather, shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of of robbers. Try to imagine this scene in your heads for just a moment. 
Try to get there in your imaginations. The feast of Passover is just days away. Jerusalem, the holy city, is now swelling with worshipers from all over the region. Jews and Gentiles alike are making their pilgrimage, making their way into the holy city and into the temple courts to prepare sacrifice for their families. This is a high feast. This is a high celebration. And upon entering the court of the Gentiles, instead of one finding means for prayer and for worship and for atonement, instead of finding what you would expect inside the temple courts, instead they find salesmen and money changers. This is the first century version of that guy at Costco who's constantly trying to sell you solar panels that you know you'll never buy. And each time you run by him or pass by him, he doesn't recognize that you have already turned him down and he's asking again if you want solar panels. And then somebody from his company comes to your doorstep and asks for the same thing. Instead of finding means for prayer and worship and atonement, they find money changer and salespeople. Let me, let me check out that animal. Let me see that animal you brought in for sacrifice. Oh my this animal isn't quite right. You see there, there's a, there's a, a little blemish there on your animal. There's, there's a flaw there in your sacrifice, in your animal. But lucky for you, for a good deal, today we have an animal that is ready for sacrifice. And if you came from another region, another city, and you don't have the right currency, you can just see our money changers right over there and we'll take care of you on the spot. The temple was beautiful. It was beautiful. If you were to walk up in the temple in the first century, you would see these 100-foot columns lining the court of the Gentiles, 100-foot stone columns. It would take three people grasping arms to get around how thick these stone columns were. The temple was beautiful. It boasted beauty. It had gold inlays and marble steps. The temple looked promising. It looked like a serious place where true worship and atonement for sin could happen. Indeed, for hundreds of years, God had ordained this place to be a a beacon of hope in God for Israel and for the nation, a place where sin was atoned for and prayers and worship were offered to God. But over time, listen, Though its outer beauty remained, inside it had turned into a place to hide robbers, a den of thieves, a hideout for thieves. These thieves, though, were clothed in priestly vesture. And so Jesus shows up. And this is what's going on. He sees the hypocrisy. He sees the abuse. And at first he doesn't say anything. No words. In fact, Jesus hasn't spoken at all. His whole donkey ride into Jerusalem, no words. 
His ride into the temple, no words. He gets off of his cult, no words. He goes into the temple, no words. He just starts rearranging the furniture. He starts flipping the tables of the money changers. So the the money that's on the table now is spilling out onto these marble floors. You got to just picture animals, pigeons flying everywhere. For some reason, he removes the seats of those who sold pigeons, just takes their chairs out. You will not be needing those anymore. The scene is chaotic. It's chaotic. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is angry. He's angry. And then in verse 13, he finally speaks. He says to them, and by the way, Jesus in the temple, he only quotes scripture. That's all he does. This is what he says, verse 13. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. In this one short sentence, Jesus quotes two of the most popular prophets in Israel, Isaiah and Jeremiah. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's taken directly out of the the book of Isaiah. But you made it a den of thieves, also taken from the book of Jeremiah. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah have in common the main theme of their prophetic ministries, and that is judgment. Judgment. Jesus is angry. He's angry and he's making a judgment against the religious leaders in Jerusalem. You have turned my father's house of prayer into a hideout for thieves and robbers. You've given them safe covering in my father's house. In other words, you are stealing away the innocence and dignity of God's people who have come to give praise and worship to their maker and you have monetized this for money. Some of us may be shocked to hear of Jesus' anger here. I don't know if you have that category in your Christology yet or in your theology, the anger of God. Some of us might be thinking, well, I thought God was love. I thought he was love. How loving was it for Jesus to come in and rearrange the furniture and freak everybody out on that high and holy day? Is this loving? David Pallison writes in his book, Good and Angry, quote, the truth is that you can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. God's anger, Pallison writes, God's anger is not unpredictable and mean-spirited. Far from being a contradiction to love, God's anger comes from love. It's the product of love betrayed and the compassion for the victims of injustice. We can't understand God's love apart from God's anger. 
When you feel, when you and I feel anger as the result of injustice, that is not evidence of your lack of love. That anger comes from the presence of love. To not feel anger in the presence of injustice is pathological and dangerous. And beloved, with this sort of 24-hour news cycle, everything on in our phones coming at us, all of this injustice, we run the risk, don't we, of not feeling anger at injustice. I need to know the body count. It has to be a certain amount before I'll read the rest of the article. To not feel anger at injustice is pathological. That's not normal. And so here's the point. How much more, how much more, if we feel anger at injustice and that's right, how much more is this true of the God who is love? His anger and his judgment come precisely because he's a loving God and he hates anything that would keep his people away from his loving care. So he comes in the temple and he sees barriers. Barriers between God and his loving care with his people and he's angry. And he cleanses the temple. He judges its leaders. But notice with me what happens next. The cleansing is followed by curing. The cleansing is followed by curing. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they, that is Jesus' critics, were indignant. They were angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And I love this. Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? And then he quotes scripture again, Psalm 8. This was our call to worship. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Unbelievable. I find this most remarkable, and I think this is only here in Matthew's gospel, where after the cleansing of the temple, the turning of the tables, the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple. Why do they come to him in the temple? You would think that these vulnerable would be the first to run out of the temple when all of the commotion is happening. But no, instead of running out of the temple, instead they feel the, re the freedom to run to Jesus. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they, they saw the love behind his anger. They knew it was for them that he was turning over the tables. Don't you see? They could see and sense that there was something different about this rabbi. His anger was rooted in love. 
And instead of running out, they ran to him in their desperation. See, the commerce that had taken place in the temple was a barrier for true worship and true healing. It was a barrier. And once Jesus had eliminated the religious marketplace, once he had eliminated the manipulation and the abuse in the temple, then appropriate ministry could happen in the house of God. I am so convinced that this is what needs to happen in our churches today. We need to abandon all of our marketing ploys, all of our cute strategies for growth, all of our schemes for revenue, all of our ideas. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when I've been in a conversation with somebody and I tell them that they're a pa- I'm a pastor, you know running a church is kind of like running a business, right? And inside, I want to say it is the exact opposite of running a business. Businesses exist to make money. The church exists to make disciples. I know what they mean. I know what they mean. There's accounting and there's budgets and all of these things. But the church is not a business. The church is a place where people come to meet Jesus. The church, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much revenue we have. If we hit our budget every year, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we buy a building and it's the most beautiful building in Costa Mesa, California. If people don't get to Jesus... It doesn't matter. We have to remove all barriers to getting to Jesus. So moved by what is taking place, the children in the temple. (laughs) Again, pigeons are flying, coins are flying. The lame and the blind now are seeing something different about Jesus and he goes, they go to him and he cures them and then all of a sudden there are children in the temple and they start crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, a messianic title. And Jesus' critics say, do you hear them? Tell me you hear them. And Jesus says, yes, I do. I hear them loud and clear. Haven't you read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Craig Blomberg writes this, quote, there the children are praising Yahweh. That's what Psalm 8 is. Psalm 8 is a song to Yahweh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, The children are there praising Yahweh. So Jesus, again, listen, accepts worship worship that is reserved for God alone. And then Blomberg says, truly one greater than the temple is here. Well, the cleansing and the curing in the temple is followed by a cursing the next morning. Look at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, 
He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, to the fig tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered withered at once. And the disciples saw it. When they saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus said to him in verse 21, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith is the operative word in this last section. It was faith that was lacking in the temple. Faith was lacking in the temple. They did not have faith that God would provide the financial needs of the temple. So they employed market strategies to bring in revenue. They didn't have faith in God. They had returned faith now to themselves. But by looking at the temple from the outside, you would anticipate great things on the inside. But inside, pure religion was nowhere to be found. Faith in man was the operation rather than faith in God. And this is what I believe is the whole point of this passage. This boast of promise, of appearance. This looks like a serious place where sin and repentance and worship can happen. But on the inside, upon closer inspection, that is not what's going on. And so the fig tree, what's up with that? The fig tree is simply an illustration of first century Judaism in Jesus' eyes. From the outside, the fig tree boasted the promise of fruit with all of its green and bushy leaves. It boasted fruit, nutrition, life. But again, upon closer inspection, it was fruitless. It was helpless. And therefore, by cursing the fig tree, what is Jesus saying? He is judging Israel and saying, apart from repentance, your temple, your center for religion will become like this fig tree, withered to its roots. Well, in 70 AD, some of you know the history, Rome would actually come and pull the temple down, stone by stone. It would wither to its roots. And so here the disciples then and now are taught yet another lesson about the centrality of faith in God. So what about you this morning? What about you? Does your life boast a certain religion on the outside? A certain morality Does it boast a certain religion on the outside, but upon closer inspection at the heart of your religion is just faith in yourself? Friends, I want to say to you and to my own heart, Jesus is still turning over tables today. He is still cursing fruitless religion in our hearts today. And sometimes as I've shared I shared before at the Roots Thanksgiving, sometimes he turns over tables and he doesn't say anything until he's done. And at the end of it, you you begin to realize that he's doing it for love. 
His anger, his move in your heart, his disruption of your life is for love. It's not anger for anger's sake. It's anger for love's sake because you've got barriers in your heart between you and true worship. Are you boasting true religion on the outside? You have it all together. You're moral. You're a good moral person. But inside, in your private life, when you're alone and nobody is watching, your modus operandi is faith in self. And so I want to say whenever and wherever you find the loving anger of God at work in your own life, turning over tables and cursing fruitless religion, Don't run away from Christ. Like the lame and the blind and the children in the temple, don't run away. Run to him. His anger is for love. His anger is because he hates when things come between you and his loving care. Run to the true temple of God. This is one of the greatest ironies in this text. Jesus has been saying throughout his ministry that there is one coming that is greater than the temple. Later in in Matthew, he's going to say, remove this temple, tear it down, and in three days I will raise it up again. And so here we have the true temple, the true meeting place between God and man entering the old temple, reappropriating its causes being the meeting place between God and man where worship and healing can actually happen. So whenever and wherever you see the loving anger of God in your life, don't run away from him. Run to him. Run run to the true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. His anger against sin is an extension of his love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, With the cleansing and the curing and the cursing, we're exposed now to the righteous indignation of God, the righteous anger of God against sin, against injustice and abuse. Father, I pray that we would not only have this category of theology in our hearts and minds, but we'd also be able to see it at work in our own lives. We don't want to make a Christ out of our own image. Only the one who is gentle on a donkey, but not the one who turns over tables. We need both. We need both. We need the humble king on the donkey, and we need the conquering king on a war horse in Revelation 19. So, Lord, would you move in our hearts? Turn over those tables. Curse fruitless religion in our hearts those things perhaps we can't even see that are barriers between us and you. Do your work in us, we pray, in Jesus' good name. Amen.